0: Hello, babes and trolls, kids and queers. Welcome to Milleniagram, the Enneagram podcast your pastor definitely won't be recommending. Together, we are here to learn a little self-deprecation, a little integration, and together, dig ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Let's get into it. All right, what's up, babes and trolls? I'm so excited about this episode. I truly think... This conversation um, that I had with Dr. Jerome Luba um, earlier this week, truly, um, I described it as a corner turning conversation because I think in my continued study of neuroscience and trauma, obviously as a complete fucking amateur, I have known for a while that there were intersections um, between the way that we can understand the brain and how it reacts to Um, both positive and negative experiences and circumstances throughout our lives and our understanding of the Enneagram. And here is an actual doctor talking about how that very thing is true. So um, I have his book in front of me. If you don't have it or you haven't looked at it, I super recommend it. It's called Whole Identity, A Brain-Based Enneagram Model for Holistic Human Thriving. What? Like, (sighs) I'm just eating that up. In the introduction, it says, the following conversation begins with a 30,000-foot view of the brain-based Enneagram, where we skim the surface of neuroscience, cover the basics of the Enneagram, and explore how the two systems intersect to build a more inclusive, reliable, and applicable model for growth. And so kind of at the heart of his um, theory around the Enneagram in neuroscience is that we have these different... Um, Centers of intelligence in the brain where we receive our information. And we all, um, for a variety of reasons, have different areas of the brain that we have prioritized receiving information from. Um, So he ties the intuitive triad to the brain stem, Um, he ties the feeling triad to the right hemisphere of the brain, and then he connects the left hemisphere of the brain to the thinking triad. And essentially he says, um, which I think is revolutionary, that all of us have access to the information that all of those areas of the brain have to offer us. And so what we tend to do is we um, we have the capacity to sort of lean into these um, centers of wisdom, centers of intelligence that, um, are equated to the different numbers, but we perhaps maybe have an efficiency is the word that he uses. Um, meaning that there is an ease of relationship with the nature of that number. It means you engage with it often. Um, he says in his book, efficiency by definition definition, is accomplishing a task with the least amount of allocated resources and energy required, which is so fascinating. It's like, it's our go-to. Um, And so we can kind of map um, what what number or numbers we have the highest efficiency in and the numbers that we have the least or maybe an inefficiency in. And we can be um, proactive about accessing those areas in our brain um, and really allowing ourselves to be the whole person that we are by understanding, okay, where am I getting my primary information? Um, and where do I need to access more? What do I need to lean into? Um, and where can I essentially allocate resources to gathering that, that new information or that new perspective that all of that exists within us. And I think that's so fucking fascinating. Um, in this interview, you'll kind of hear him talk a little bit about, um, his theory behind there, but I really recommend finding the book. Um I was just able to find it. I wanted to purchase copies for my friends, so um wholeidentity.com um, is where you can buy that directly. It's already the book is already in its third publication because people are that fucking hungry for it. Um, as they should be. So I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Um, we're going to go through it with minimal interruptions because it's literally all gold. Um, and I can't wait to engage with you um, and any questions that you may have because it's definitely a different take and maybe um, a new understanding of the Enneagram. It might, it might kind of change and revolutionize the way that you think about It, it definitely has for me. Um, but it makes sense in a way that I haven't experienced before. So I'm really excited to share this with you. Um, I hope that we can continue to, um, learn from him. I know that I will be, and I recommend finding all of his resources out there, getting in front of him, like actually hearing from him in person is huge. Um, But this is a great beginning, and I'm so excited that he took the time to share this with us. I will let you know I caught him literally sitting at the baggage claim in between um, multiple jet-setting adventures. So you'll hear a little bit of background noise, um, which I honestly kind of love. I know Corey hates it. Love you, Corey. Um, But I think that it's a great space um, for us to really have like an authentic conversation with Dr. Jerome on the go. so, yeah, let's get into it. Uh,
1: my name is Dr. Jerome Libba. I am a doctor in Atlanta who is working to combine neurology and neuroscience in the Enneagram. My pronoun is he, and I am thrilled to be with you.
0: I'm so thrilled to have you. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit. So I've read, um, I read Whole Identity, which is your, um, your book, Kind of essentially laying out the brain based Enneagram model, um, which I don't think anyone has really ever done. Um, And I'd love to hear more about how you got the idea to um, connect the Enneagram to your work in neuroscience.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's weird. When you Google something and there's no results that come up, you feel like you're either out of your mind or onto something yes. very interesting. But either way, when I first started Googling this, I got into the Enneagram about about eight years ago. And a good friend of mine introduced it like most good friends who know about the Enneagram uh, unrelentingly. <laughs> of course. Um, and I was in the middle of finishing my doctorate, and also I was doing a doctorate concurrent with postgraduate board certifications and fellowships at the same time, so that when I finished with school, I could sit for all of the tests, have all of the things done in terms of school, and then just move into into practical mm-hmm. practice. Um, but what happened was, when he introduced me to it, um, you know, I was fairly busy, and he said, "Well, why don't you just use this audiobook and listen while you drive?" Because I was commuting about two hours round trip from school to to home and so he gave me a recording i listened to the recording and as i was listening to the descriptions of everything and he he took about eight months to get me to finally listen because i was like <laughs> i don't have the time and then after i after i finished i i called him and i cursed him because i was like you've you've legitimately changed the trajectory of my life um because <laughs> when i listened to it Uh, I'd never read anything on the Enneagram and when I was hearing it I was like man alive this sounds like really basic brain function because you got to understand at that time I'm getting a doctorate in chiropractic I'm doing a postgraduate board certification in what's called functional neurology which is basically advanced brain rehab and 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 care kind of like a physical therapist or an occupational therapist but if you take a a traditional neurologist a chiropractor a PTOT and put them into a blender and you try to help somebody with a complex brain issue but without drugs or surgery that's what I do so I'm hearing all of this stuff and I'm in the middle of a a class on neurochemistry and, and we're reinforcing the idea of you know what parts of the brain do what and as I'm listening to it I'm like man this sounds just like how the brain works on a really high level perspective And what I did was I finished the 10-hour recording. It was by um, Richard Rohr. And I go and grab a book, and it's the first time I've seen the picture. I've finished a 10-hour recording, but I hadn't seen the symbol Mm. yet. And when I sat down with it, and I saw the symbol for the first time, I was like, I mean, these triads line up perfectly with the triads of the brain, left brain, right brain, and brain stem. The central nervous system is the three triads, but it's upside down. (laughs) And then when I listen to when I listen to the recordings of the Enneagram even through the intelligence centers of head, heart and gut my like, and this is also one of the benefits I didn't have a bias of a lineage or a tradition that I'd been raised in so I didn't know any better my my uh, naivete was a was a benefit sure. so to speak because I'm looking at it going why is the gut above the head and the heart I feel like that's an upside down person And then looking at the brain, I was like, but if I leave the left and the right brain where the head and the heart are, then the brain's upside down. So what I did was the very first time I saw the symbol ever, I turned it 180 degrees and spent a couple of hours just basically connecting synonyms for the function of the brain with what I had just learned about the function of each of the numbers. And that opened up this crazy matrix experience where I had this synergy of years and years and years of, of work around functional neurology and, and real estate in the brain and how that turns into practical application for a patient and said, I think that this is the exact same thing. (laughs) In the last eight years, has been trying to unpack that experience where I kind of learned Kung Fu. and <laughs> that's, where the, that's where the whole identity came from, was, was saying this is the introduction. The whole identity book is actually more of a really, really expanded white paper saying this is a theory, I'm putting it out in the world, and then the subsequent volumes will be unpacking the, uh, the evidence bridges and the ideas and the hypothesis um, around how I think it practically hmm. works.
0: Interesting. So how did, once you once you connected the, the centers of the brain to um, what you had just learned about the Enneagram, how did you get kind of the vision for um, whole identity, the book, the paper, um, and kind of the practical applications that you put in there?
1: Yeah, um, so it, it comes from kind of three primary spaces. Um, all origin spaces are translated into who I am as a person now. Um, So I think it's important to kind of preface it with that Um, because we all have confirmation bias and it's important for people Mm. to know mine. Um, So I've been a patient for 20 years. The only reason I became a doctor was because I couldn't find (laughs) a good one. you know, I've, I went yeah, I went to 21 specialists over nine years and spent $100,000 in the first five years of my marriage to get an answer for what's called a Chiari malformation and the insight from everybody that I worked with that they don't know what to do with that other than heavy-duty surgery or heavy-duty pharma- pharmaceuticals. And I wasn't opposed to that. It's just, unfortunately, it didn't work for my situation. Sure. Um, so I ended up being a patient who, over the course of 20 years, couldn't find anybody who could give me any kind of real answers Um, and that that was reinforced based on my my uh, my previous spiritual and religious backgrounds Um, I I joke with folks that I'm a I'm a recovering charismatic (laughs) (laughs) I I grew up in uh, a lot of Pentecostal spaces and got drunk on the Holy Ghost so much in high school that I blacked out for most of it I don't remember most of it Uh, I think that I think that's also probably a little bit of you know trauma and repression and other things like that tons of great spaces where I learned a ton of great things. But I asked a lot of questions, and people didn't have a lot of answers. Uh, and in hindsight, realized I love the idea of you know God, and I love the idea of so many spaces around being a spiritual person. Uh, I just didn't like the way the church kind of prostituted the whole thing, especially the charismatic church prostituting the Holy Spirit, which mm. is a whole other conversation. Sure. Um, but I kept getting it, I kept getting into spaces where I'm like, this doesn't this doesn't really clarify things for me. And as a patient, I wasn't clarifying things. And then I got into the enneagram, and I had some really basic questions like what happens if you tie in a number or what happens if you really resonate with several numbers and all of this came back to the place where you know i was raised with this idea that i'm made in the image of of divinity or made in the image of god and what number is god or i'm raised in the clinical space of man you are a whole person and you use your whole brain and the more that you use your brain and the more effectively it's integrated the healthier Mm. you become So in every single area, from my spiritual background to my patient background and clinical background to the Enneagram background, I've been inundated with the idea that the more integrated a human being you are, the healthier you can be. And the idea of being a single number, spiritually, clinically, and from an Enneagram standpoint, just didn't feel right. But the problem was, there wasn't any way to justify that Mm. so when I learned about the Enneagram and saw it through the brain function I was like well you don't use one portion of your brain you use your whole brain how effectively and how integrated is a different conversation but when you look at the Enneagram and you go Okay man, I really connect with three or four or five really effective ways of connecting with different numbers and spaces and essence and going, it's all the same thing. So the way to really distill my answer for you is I feel like everybody's speaking the same language but a different dialect. It's not even a different language. You know, my, my dad spoke 13 languages, I was born in South Africa and immigrated as a refugee to the States from Congo, which is not the normal story for yeah. what I look like. Um, I also, I'm also a white guy named Jerome who was born in South Africa, so I don't look like a Jerome either. <laughs> so it's just kind of my history. Um, But my dad spoke four dialects of Swahili, and he could go to different parts of South Africa and Zimbabwe, and if he was speaking a different dialect, nobody understood what he was saying, and it was the same language. But as soon as he changed dialect, everybody understood. Wow. So the whole reason I made the whole identity was to help everybody understand, I think, neuroscience and brain function, especially when it's distilled for the layperson, which is who I work with. I don't work with you know, high-end academic researchers. I work with single moms who have a nonverbal child with autism and two other kids, and they've got to figure out how to make it work with eight mm-hmm. to 10 minutes a day. It doesn't work for me to send them to a five-day retreat in right, any, right. you know? So figuring out how to translate it and use neuroscience and practical application specifically for self-care, as a translation tool. I think it, it helps everybody understand, regardless of the, the background they come from, the Enneagram, whether it's diamond or it's set or it's you know narrative or, or personality or domain, whatever it is, it's all the same language. It's actually just different dialects. And once people have that translation tool, they start realizing they're saying the same thing just with different
0: mm, accents. I really love that. And it, it, it makes me so excited, Jerome, because my, um, so my experience with the Enneagram is similar to yours in that I um, I wasn't quote unquote raised in a particular tradition. I've been doing my own research on it for many years um, and I've kind of like hodgepodged my understanding of it together and then also my, my interest in the Enneagram and my interest in trauma and how it affects the brain. Um, have kind of collided and so discovering your work has been like oh my god someone else out there is having these thoughts um but you you have like the actual academic training to to back it up like I'm just out here in the world like kind of (laughs) just randomly picking up books at the library and trying to make connections and I reading whole identity was like oh Yes, this is what I've been trying to find.
1: Yeah, because yeah. you know, I think people, everybody who's in the Enneagram and stays with the Enneagram, because there's so many people that, that get put off by it. It's, it's no different than what people experience in, in religious spaces, regardless of the, of the, the tradition sure. that that comes from. But I think the people who stay in it go, it feels like there's something that resonates here. It feels like there's an essence to it that is applicable to me understanding myself better. It just, as much as we intuit, sometimes it can be, you know, on on one hand so dogmatic and on another hand so esoteric that you're like, what the hell do I do with that on Tuesday? <laughs> right. You know, so it's, and for me it's like, uh, because I, I specialize in complex unresolved cases. So everybody who's coming in to see me is either, you know, a traumatic brain injury or a concussion or PTSD, anxiety, mental health, nonverbal autism. You know, it's not something where it's like, I need an sure, adjustment going sure. I see you and leave. But that's that's obviously because that's, that's my own lived experience, so that's my confirmation bias. But the thing that I think everybody's really connecting with that you point to there is the Enneagram feels so relevant to finding an actual opportunity to really and truly heal or at least improve our responses to our previous traumas and and adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. It's just trying to leverage some of that neuroscience to go, man, do you realize that you may have formed your number as much from being shown and being mirrored healthy behavior as you are trying to avoid negative trauma or unhealthy Mm -hmm. behavior? And so much of the Enneagram is built off of, well, it comes from a childhood wound. And that's a pretty dualistic answer because you can actually have the brain develop its particular profile off of profoundly beneficial experiences as much, if not more, than profoundly negative experiences. Oh,
0: interesting. So
1: trying to have people understand your personality and your identity is not necessarily just all trauma. You know, it's, it's a combination of pleasure-seeking and pain-avoidance, both and. It's a combination of being shown really healthy behavior and really unhealthy behavior both and right you know so it also might be that you don't you don't speak a language that other people speak because no one's ever modeled a healthy version of that for you and you're like why would I ever spend my time in really aggressive spaces and do that kind of workout that just doesn't Mm. feel good for me you know so this time and just that saying that being said I know I'm talking fast I want to fit in what we can and folks can rewind if they want Um, But I think the simplest thing that I explain to people is the way the brain works is you're never a left or a right brain person. When people say that, I always ask, well, what happened to the other (laughs) half of your brain? Where (laughs) did it go? Right? Where did it go? And looking at this, I think the easy way I explain it to folks is you are a sum total, a whole identity that is comprised of different personalities that will show up in context. So everybody who is an introvert, if they absolutely have to be, or if the situation calls for it, and they have some flexibility and skill, can be extroverted, and sometimes need to be. And extroverts can be introverted, and oftentimes, especially extroverts, it's a healthy thing for them to exercise restraint and be introverted. So it's not a fixed idea. You know, we thought for a long time that the brain was incapable of change. I've worked with 75-year-old stroke patients who have gotten out of a wheelchair after 4 years post stroke within 6 Holy weeks. Holy shit. So the idea yeah. of what the yeah, the idea of what the brain can and can't do when you're looking at a nine-year-old who's never spoken and they start speaking within six months, I always tell everybody, instead of trying to look at this as if you're having a conversation around your personality and saying, I can't because, or that person did because, start saying, if I understood more of what's available to me and what the opportunity is, could I enter into the conversation saying, I don't know what's possible, but let's try until the body Mm -hmm. proves me wrong or the brain proves me wrong. So a whole identity is all nine numbers actively working together in concert, like a symphony. And you may or may not have harmony, you may have discord and chaos, and and you may have some things that are going wrong, but you have to start by knowing everything's available to you, because if you're above ground, you have a whole brain. It's just trying to connect the dots of, well, how do I understand that I can access a particular type simultaneously with my primary if I don't know that that's available to me? I won't even, if, if I wake up, I'm in Austin this morning, and I live in Atlanta, if, if I wake up in Atlanta and somebody told me you can never go to Austin because you're in Atlanta, that's where you live, I would be like, but I came from Africa, <laughs> and I can go to Austin, I just have to plan a trip, but if somebody keeps telling me you can't because that's not where you live, then I misunderstand that it's about travel. It's not about being isolated to a particular part of the world. And this is honestly why I think a lot of numbers and a lot of people using the Enneagram sound a lot like nationalism, Ooh. you know? Because they're so heavily committed to their particular part of the world that every single time you have a conversation with them about another person, they're so damn prejudiced about it because they're like, I only, ra- I only got raised in this area of the world and I'm indoctrinated to it. And if you tell me to go somewhere else, I'm first going to tell you how I can't and secondly I'm going to tell you why I shouldn't (laughs) and I'm like that's that's pretty nationalistic right? Absolutely. So just trying to trying to change some healthy language around that to go take a deep breath it's everything and that's Well and so this
0: is why you talk about in Whole Identity not not labeling yourself a number but rather understanding that you have a certain efficiency in a variety of numbers which I think is really interesting language for that. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, the thing is, is a lot of people. You, I think you could use the word lead and efficient, but not necessarily strong sure. or dominant, um, unless you're talking in the right context. Because the brain is designed first and foremost to keep you alive. It is one hundred percent survival based, and then it is safety based and self gratification based, and all three of those steps from survival to safety to self gratification which is either decreasing pain or increasing pleasure, all of that is subconscious, everything. And 97% of what happens to us as human beings on a daily basis is wow. subconscious. So if that, only 3% reaches conscious level. Like, everybody who's doing the inner work of the Enneagram is trying to excavate 97% of their psyche that's underground. Wow. Right? So when you're when you're doing that, you have to have a little bit of patience and a little bit of grace, if I can use that word, to say, Man, my brain is just trying to keep me alive, and if that's the case, and I was trying to travel from Austin to L.A., it would probably be a good idea to have a really fuel-efficient vehicle. And fuel efficiency is not about power, it's about how long can you do the task and accomplish the task before you run out of fuel. So efficiency is accomplishing the goal with the least amount of resources possible, not being excessive in terms of activity. So if you're efficient in an eight, you can get to that reaction of being able to increase your energy level quicker than somebody who's efficient in a nine, who's actually really capable of slowing their energy down on autopilot. Uh. So changing those responses and saying you're just really efficient at it, and if you become aware of it, you bring leadership into the conversation from, you know, your executive spaces of your brain, can you impact it? And absolutely you can, but you have to understand first and foremost so you have access to all of it and you're really efficient in some areas, but those are because based on a lifetime of lived experiences, they give you the highest probability of survival. So you keep re-engaging. When well, you
0: talk about in whole identity about kind of the risk versus reward um, and how essentially our brain creates these attachments that allow us to continue to, to, implement different um, behaviors or different emotions or different reactions in order to give us the best possibility for survival.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually the reason I put that into the The book is that's that's kind of the on-ramp or the the easter egg for the trauma explanations and a lot of the work that's coming down the road that will be really really helpful for doing our own trauma-informed care whether or not we're we're journeying on our own or we're doing it with a therapist which i highly highly recommend there is nothing on the planet that i think is more effective for long-term health than sitting with a good quality trauma-informed therapist proactively, not reactively, but also obviously both. Um, But the reason I mention that is because when we understand, and and anybody who's listening who's a therapist or who has been to therapy and understands things like internal family systems or AEDP or CBT or DBT or trauma-informed work, anything that helps us to understand what in our history created the protocol that requires us to respond in a particular way if we feel threatened and to what degree that threat exists. Well if you look at the way if you look at the way let's just say I'll use myself as an example okay Based on the first 20 minutes of this conversation, 90% of the people that are listening to us are going to think that I'm a five. (laughs) That's my primary number. Sure. Okay? (laughs) This is what always happens. Everybody defaults to thinking stereotypically. This guy in neuroscience and research and all of these things, but he's really outgoing, so he must be a social five or a sexual five. Couldn't be further from the truth. Five is my lowest number on the entire Enneagram and the reason being is my entire life experience has been a constellation of ambiguity. I have very rarely ever gotten clarity, so I don't pursue it. It's useless <laughs> to me. If I do the right for me personally, for me sure, personally, sure. right? I don't have I don't have a lot of lived experiences. However, if I'm pursuing information, the 5 space for me on the enneagram becomes my how, but the 2 is my why. It is always my why because I wanna be able to create something really valuable for people to be healthy so they are healthier in themselves and the relationships they have. My entire experience is biased towards two most heavily. But when we talk about risk and reward, it's important to understand there are two spectrums and two really high level kind of options in each side of the spectrum. So can I explain that really quickly? Okay, so super simple. You're either trying to avoid pain or you're trying to pursue pleasure. That's it. Right? That's the basics of attachments. And when you say attachment, that lives in the part of the brain that's called the limbic system. And limbic limbic system deals with not only fear and the intensity of that fear, but also arousal and pleasure and self-gratification. So when you are dealing with pleasure seeking, you can also achieve pleasure seeking by decreasing pain without introducing pleasure. So let me say you avoid pain and you introduce pleasure, or you're pursuing pleasure, but here's how those two spectrums work. If I'm trying to avoid pain, that either happens because I've legitimately had a trauma, I've encountered a risk, and I don't want to to find it again. I don't want to go back there again. Or, I've never encountered that particular space, so it's not that I don't find it risky, I just don't have any experience with it Mm. being rewarding. So why why am I why would I be scared of something I've never had a trauma with right I've never had I just don't have any familiar it's Surely. not a language I speak so you, you either are trying to minimize pain because you legitimately had a negative experience or you just never found it useful so you don't go towards it on the other side of that if you have pleasure you can have great experiences in, in experiencing profoundly pleasurable things and you want to reinforce them or you had really, really negative things happen and you want to reframe them and you want to change the way it was experienced so that you can experience the healthy side of that. So there's different ways to look at it and there's a picture in the book that I can send a digital version for you to send out to your listeners, but it's basically saying there's there's more context and more nuance to what you consider painful and what you consider pleasurable and why. Myself as an example, I had 117 migraines and eight days without a headache in 2017. Wow. In 2018, I had 25 migraines and 18 days without a migraine or a headache. I had an as- a zero day or an asymptomatic day. If I walk up to somebody and I go, I had 25 migraines last year and 18 days without a headache, does that sound like a pleasurable <laughs> year? Does it sound like an no. enjoyable year? Of course not. No way in hell. anybody's signing up for that. But if I told you I had had 117 the year before, is it more enjoyable by comparison? Absolutely, for sure. So this is why we have to have the conversation around all of these nuanced pieces of going, if my brain is trying to subconsciously decrease pain or increase pleasure, especially for folks who are listening who have really significant struggles with celebrating wins or feeling like things are getting better or feeling like they're minimizing their pain, you know, a lot of the time, you may not have a profoundly enjoyable experience, but because the experience is so significantly less painful, We have to take the opportunity to acknowledge that that is, in fact, better by comparison and then see what I can do for this year and for next year. And and you're talking to somebody, you know, who I'm I'm very transparent about this, has been suicidal three times and attempted twice. This is not a space where I'm talking to people from acute, you know, non-empathetic, non-experience-based, you know, just, right, just do your right. best. It's, it's one of those things where you're looking at, I have to figure out a way to navigate with somebody who's dealing with profoundly traumatic physical, mental, emotional, relational, or spiritual trauma. And going, I may not be able to get you into a position where I completely eliminate your pain or even the memory of it. And that may not even mm. be the goal. What does it look like to go, you moved further away from pain, even though you didn't introduce pleasure, and that can be a more life-giving experience if you allow it to be. And I have to tell myself that every morning, because every morning I still wake up a patient first and a doctor second, because this year I've had over 80 migraines, and it has been a profoundly more difficult year than last year. So this is the, this is the reason I'm doing the work, is not only to help people see from a clinical perspective and a neuroscientific perspective, but also because this is stuff that I have to practice this every day in order to keep myself above ground
0: interesting yeah thank you so much for sharing that yeah, you're welcome. um so I'm interested uh I kind of want to go back to the topic of childhood wounds because so much of um our modern understanding of the Enneagram does kind of center around those and as someone who is interested in trauma-informed care and kind of doing my own research around that um I've definitely, um, prioritized understanding those. Um, I, but I, I, so I'm very interested in kind of hearing about how positive stimuli can also sort of, um, affect what our efficiencies are. Um, but can we relate the childhood wounds of the Enneagram as we understand them to, um, neuroception of danger cues when we were younger like in a in a younger developmental state okay so because I think a lot of people talk about um either the childhood wound being an actual trauma or a perceived trauma and I've always had difficulty around that language because if you experience something as traumatic it is regardless of whether or not it should be (laughs) um but I'm interested in, in kind of your understanding of how we essentially um, catalog, catalog those early experiences into these recurring patterns.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, a, what a profoundly good and complex question, right? Um, I think it's it's important. Sorry, it's, there's an announcement because I'm sitting okay. by baggage claim at the Austin <laughs> Airport here. <laughs> um, it, it, for those who are listening, it was quite the debacle to try and get this call to happen. So I appreciate your patience with the background noise. Um, the the here's the thing. the The first thing that has to be presented or kind of laid on the table is, one, your brain does not know the difference between perception and reality. Forgive me. I'm, I'm sorry. With, I'm going to let that okay. announcement finish because yes. I know it's loud. Welcome, welcome to Austin. There we go. Um, your brain does not know the difference between perception and reality. That does not mean that what is perceived is not real. Okay? In fact, it is as real as if it were to have actually occurred. This is why when people are going through trauma-informed care, the person who's walking you through EMDR or ADP or DBT or whatever your therapeutic intervention and and, and avenue is, the person who's walking walking you through it has to critically understand that your brain is going to re-experience and relive the trauma until you are informed and until you are capable of understanding you are remembering it, okay? I'm gonna say it again, you are re-experiencing it or reliving it until you are capable of understanding through a higher level of leadership that you are remembering it. And if that's not understood, you have the potential for secondary re-traumatization every single time you think about it. Now, here's why this is so important for anybody who's had any kind of trauma. And oftentimes when people think about PTSD, for instance, I worked for two years with combat injured veterans that were up to quadruple amputee in Dallas. When we talk about PTSD, most of the time people think it's just a physical trauma. We're learning now through concussion and traumatic brain injury work and research that someone can chemically reconcuss without a head injury or without even a physical impact. And in fact, a lot of people who have had either mental or emotional abuse or relational abuse. Their brains are looking and responding the same as if they had had a physical head injury. So when we're talking about the severity of a response to a trauma, we have to be very, very cognizant and very, very careful not to rank Mm -hmm. someone's trauma, right? Because it's it's dependent on someone's personal threshold. Every single time people hear about my migraines and they have a headache or a migraine, almost like clockwork, they're going to tell me, but at least my migraines aren't like yours. Uh. And if I tell those people that have had, if I tell those people, You've had three migraines this year, and I've had 117. I've averaged 100 for 20 years. I've figured out how to manage that. If you went from three to 15, and I went from 100 to 103, who had the harder year, me or them? Based on my threshold, it would actually be them. And the reason I say this, is not only do people who have harder experiences dismiss people who have had perceived easier experiences, but people who have perceived easier experiences are dismissing their own experience based on reference to someone else. The church has used Job in this situation for decades and years to say, you need to suck it up, it's not so bad. I don't have Job's threshold, I have my threshold, right? So the reason that I say that is when we're talking about these experiences and talking about perception and reality, your brain is trying to keep you alive 100% of the time. So when you have an argument with a significant other, that argument ends and two days later, you go back and you're telling a friend about it and you start revving up again and you start getting emotional again and you start feeling it in your body again and the language starts coming out just like it did two days before. Your brain does not know that you aren't re-experiencing and reliving the argument in real time. So we have to, on one hand, be really, really aware that perception is reality until we understand that we're remembering it, not re-experiencing it. And if that's the case, not only does it give you an indication of the power, of the problem, but it also gives you an indication of the power of the solution. because if you can quickly associate that I am okay, I am safe, I' am not in fact having a life-threatening experience, I'm having a profoundly connected memory to something that happened to me in childhood, then we'd be able to, we start to be able to, to understand where we are and get an orientation that allows us to make healthier decisions from a higher level of, of understanding. And that's I mean, look at the movie Ratatouille you're you're looking at somebody who's in what in his sixties, the the, the the food critic. Right. He takes a bite of that. He takes a bite of that ratatouille, and where where does he go? Right. He goes right
0: He's back to childhood. He's not in the restaurant day, anymore.
1: Right. Yeah, and they did a profoundly good job with that because they didn't keep him in the restaurant. They put him back in the doorway of his mom's house, remembering viscerally what it felt like to feel loved mm. and to feel connected. He wasn't in the restaurant at that point anymore. He tasted that food. He had a limbic attachment, which is most effectively connected to smell and taste and sound, but it's also connected to every sensory system, but smell the most. He's now eight years old in the doorway, remembering what it feels like to be loved for the first time in decades. That's what we're talking about with the power of these memories. It can either help you to heal in one moment, or it can take a lifetime, or it can keep re-traumatizing you because you can't tell the difference between remembering and re-experiencing. So those conversations are really important. But first and foremost, you have to be careful with telling somebody, oh, well, that was perceived, so it wasn't real. If somebody says that to you, they don't know how the brain works.
0: (laughs) Are you a fan of nudes? Yes, this is a trick question. Um, I never thought that I would be saying this, but... Queer Twitter is literally the only place to be. Like, if you're not there, like, what are you doing? Um, And when I was fundraising to try and keep this podcast alive, um, everybody contributed their nudes and what we call lewds and hofos um, to get this show back on the motherfucking road, you feel? So um, if you would like to get in on the fun... Um, I'm kind of changing up what the Patreon looks like, but um, I definitely know that you're going to have access to content before everyone else. And number two, um, lots of sexy pictures. They're not up there yet, but we're going to be working on that in the months to come because I couldn't just do that shit the one time. Um, And then honestly you're gonna have like unedited interviews so you're gonna hear the shit that we had to cut um because it was maybe fascinating and fucking classic and brilliant but um you know people have short attention spans except for you because you um have a bigger brain That's not science. Um, But please join us on Patreon. Um, If you just search patreon.com slash millenniagram, join our posse, $1, $5, like whatever you can do. um, It really keeps our show on the road. The majority of our patrons are $1 and $5 donors. And I fucking love that shit because it means that um, capitalism is sucking us all dry. And yet we are doing you know, giving our widow's fucking might to keep alive the things that we love. And I'm grateful to contribute to one of the things that you love. Let's continue writing this story together. Patreon.com slash millenniogram. Go find it, hun. Well, and I think there's such a, I mean, in, in trauma discussion spaces, there's such a tendency to sort of gaslight oneself with, Oh, well my situation wasn't as bad as theirs. So Really, I should, I should suck it up. I should be able to move on from this. It shouldn't be hitting me this hard. Um, and so we kind of, we kind of continue to um, put off our own healing process by trying to convince ourselves that what we experienced was not "quote unquote" as bad as whoever else.
1: Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind for me is whenever somebody says that in that tone, in the way that you just described it, it's so heavily layered with shame and it's so heavily layered with, with inadequacy and insufficiency because what happened was no one gave that person a safe space to come and communicate their concerns or their fears or their trauma without judgment. So what ends up happening is somebody. whenever anybody says, yeah, but... What they're saying is, I'm trying to diffuse this because I I feel a degree of insufficiency and inadequacy. And if I was already fixed and healthy, we wouldn't have to have this conversation in the first place. Instead of coming, this is why the very first page in the book says we are fully capable of wholeness. This is not about being less broken, it's about becoming more whole. Because trying to help people understand in all of the spaces that somebody told you or lied to you or misunderstood what their definition of broken and flawed is, I want you to understand and help to move you towards you can become a healthier version of yourself with your pain and with your trauma in relationship with each other. Every single day like becoming more whole is never about eliminating removing or disregarding our previous pains or pleasures It's about integrating all of those pieces and going how are they effectively helping me to be a healthier version tomorrow and the next day? You know, so it's a it's a very it's a very important thing when when people are saying, you know, I, I, I just I feel like I shouldn't be dealing with this anymore that somebody goes and that sucks. I'm so sorry and I know you don't want to, but I don't think that this is a conversation of should. Uh, I think it's a conversation of where are you at, and what does it look like to resource you with really, really healthy options and avenues for for health. Right.
0: Um, can you say more about um, there are no bears?
1: Yeah. So. Um, this is coming from a space of someone who is very efficient in two and definitely, definitely knows what it's like to go to eight. <laughs> um, and <laughs> also, I, I am of the mindset that I think there are no one-way roads in the brain. So I think when people are in stress, they go to both eight and four. And when they're in security, they go to both eight and four. It's not a conversation we'll unpack here, but neurologically, there are no one-way roads. It's not how it works. Oh, I'm so um, fascinated so by that. <laughs> wow yeah and also I mean it ends up giving you a ton of additional options for improving your health when you realize that you don't have one way to get anywhere <laughs> yeah you know? um, it's just a whole different conversation but what happened was I would I would have these conversations and my dad passed when I was 14. And my dad was, uh, you know, in the Rhodesian Bush War for 13 years as a frontline gunner doing a job that had an average life expectancy of six months. Uh, I'm the only person that I know that was run over by a car when I was eight in the first year of being in the States and subsequently spanked for being run over by that car. Oh, my God. um, Because... When you are a refugee kid and you are on a work visa and your dad doesn't know whether or not going to the hospital is going to get you deported, his own bears come out. Um, And my, my dad was really, really efficient in an eight with a seven wing and an eight with a nine wing. So I say that to say, in my lived experience and also in my own experience, I really, really struggled with understanding why anger could come so quick and why it was especially as i learned about neuroscience why it was so damn efficient and so <laughs> so good at showing up when it right. needed to be right so the reason i say that is when i explain to people there are no bears what i'm saying is your brain can't tell the difference between a bear and a deadline meaning if you have something due and somebody pulls a gun on you your brain can't tell the difference case in point for me today i got up to go to the airport at 5:15. If I had gotten up late and I'm running late for a flight and anybody who's listening who has ever run late for a flight and you know that you are getting more and more likely of missing that flight, do you end up having like this zen experience where you're like, oh it's wrong, I'm okay, I'm not gonna miss my flight. And if I do miss my flight, everything's gonna be alright. Yeah. Now you freak out. You start to have you start to have a body based visceral experience, which is called a mesolimbic escape. It's this sympathetic storm that happens. And why does that happen? Why does it happen that if you have a toxic relationship with somebody and they called you on the phone and their name showed up on the caller ID right now, that you would either hold your breath, start hyperventilating, get nauseous, your gut would shut down and you'd start sweating? It's a name on a phone, right? Right. Like, what kind of authority do you have in that space to just decline the call and, and, and completely eliminate a non-existent threat, right? The reason being is your brain is so good at keeping you alive that even the perception, of a threat, like missing a flight, or a phone call from somebody that you don't know, or a phone call like my dad's been gone 21 years. If my dad's name showed up on the caller ID right now, do you know what kind of emotional oh response I would have? <laughs> like I would, I would be, I would one. My very first reaction would actually be elation because I would, I would, I would not even question whether it was real. I would just want to talk to him. But then I would have a completely different response when I realized that that's not possible. But my point in that is when your brain can't tell the difference between perception and reality, and it's it's trying to understand if you are safe or not all of the quality of those decisions and everything that's happening in your world is going to be very different. Case in point, I'll ask you a couple of questions and you can tell me. If you were running from a bear, there's an actual bear right. chasing you, what are the chances that you're gonna stop and use the bathroom?
0: <laughs> Zero.
1: Okay. so. Physiologically and neurologically, everything from your mouth to your anus is going to shut down if you are dealing with stress or fear. There's secondary survival responses. So what is acid reflux? Breathing, asthma, digestion, Crohn's, irritable bowel, digestive issues, constipation, reproduction. Everything between the mouth and the anus is secondary for survival if you are under a life-threatening situation. So if you have long-standing stress and anxiety, is it possible that your digestive complaints are actually related to your psyche and you're having a psychosomatic issue? This is why it's really important to read books like The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Koe and start reading about things like polyvagal therapy from Stephen Porges. It's really, really right. good stuff. But if a bear is chasing you in the woods, what's the chances that you're gonna stop and take a really nice quality nap?
0: <laughs> zero. Less than zero. Zero,
1: so you're, you're gonna... Yeah, because you're going to end up affecting sleep and the quality of sleep. What's the chances you're going to stop and mate something?
0: <laughs> Zero.
1: Not Absolutely. going to happen, right? And you got to understand, there's only two species on the planet that actually mate for pleasure. It's us and... You I know don't. The other one? Dolphins. I, you know what?
0: I have heard that. Okay.
1: Yeah, so when you're looking at that, you also got to think the whole conversation that we're talking about is how your brain is processing the idea of vulnerability. And the root word for vulnerability is vulnera, which in Latin means to be woundable. So your brain is going over this entire thing going, is this going to hurt and to what degree is it gonna hurt? So every single time somebody gets into a vulnerable situation or a vulnerable conversation, especially, especially depending on their type or their subtype or what triad they're in or all of those things, when the idea of vulnerability, even if it's not conscious, it's subconscious. The idea of vulnerability, is it possible that the way that you are reacting is because you feel woundable and you have to respond in an active conscious way to say that's not true, I'm not in a life-threatening situation. Because here's the last question for you that connects with all of this: If you're running from a bear in the woods, what's the chances you're gonna stop and have a board meeting <laughs> about how to handle the bear? <laughs> hey Hannah, I got an idea. Let's uh, let's make a strategy. The bear has eaten you and I have a chance to run a little bit faster because we decided to have a conversation <laughs> and the bear got one of us. So here, okay. So here's where, the reason I say that is this is why it's so important to be able to take a deep breath and understand if your brain thinks that you're in a life-threatening situation or even a degree of stress, when fear goes up, cognition goes down. 100% of the time. When fear goes up, cognition goes down. To what degree it will be directly dependent on the severity of the stress and the fear? So if you are dealing with something profoundly difficult, even if it doesn't feel like it's traumatic, but it feels stressful, your brain is designed to reallocate resources to keeping you alive, which is meaning, I'm gonna lose my capacity to think and feel clearly because my body is trying to react for me. So knowing those things is really important to go, man, when I'm responding or, or look at what happens every single time somebody has an Enneagram conversation and they get triggered and they start getting defensive or they start getting offensive. What just happened was to some degree, something in the conversation just made them feel vulnerable and potentially woundable or actually wounded or it reminded them of a trigger that has nothing to do with the person that's mm-hmm. currently in front of them. And until, until someone in a higher level or a higher position of leadership in their own brain steps in and goes, that person is not a bear, until proven otherwise, their best chance of survival is to assume mm-hmm. that they are. And that, that is where you see the subtypes. I think the subtypes are quintessentially tied to fight, fight, or freeze responses. The sexual is a fight. The freeze is a self-preservation. I'm sorry, the, the freeze is a social, and the uh, self-preservation is a fr- fight. Let me say it again. I just went sideways on that, I apologize. Sexual is fight. Social is freeze. Self-preservation wow. is fight. They're very hardwired, natural, survival responses. And if you understand that, and you look up the synonym, go to thesaurus.com and look up the synonym of fight, and you will see everything that not only the sexual subtype is looking for, but also every assertive type is looking for. If you look up social and you say, okay, this is the same thing as freeze, but you look up a word like maintain or balance or order or structure or duty or obligation, they're all the same thing. And then if you look up flight, that's the same thing as withdrawal, disengage, disconnect, disassociate. The synonyms are all there. So it's, it's, it's helpful to understand that the reason we're responding, there's a good chance 97% of it is on autopilot and it's trying to help us. But for anybody who's listening and goes, oh my God, what chances do I have of making an impact to 95 to 97% of me being <laughs> autopilot, realize this is actually a really, really, really good thing. It's a very, very healthy structure because if you look at, let's say like Tesla, for instance, or, or Apple, global organizations, if Steve Jobs walked down onto the factory floor and watched every single device being manufactured, how efficient would that be? Not at all. It would be wildly inefficient. It's not his job. He's not there to know the inner workings of every single thing subconsciously. But if Steve Jobs made one decision, I don't know, like coming out with an iPhone in 2007, is it possible he could change the entire world off of one decision? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason only 3% reaches conscious level is because it's fuel efficient. Now the question becomes, do you have healthy or unhealthy leadership impacting every employee downstream? Because that's a really important thing to know because you may not be aware of what's happening in your subconscious. But a good leader is constantly checking in, but not necessarily micromanaging. Those are two very, very different things.
0: Interesting. You know, I'm thinking about, um, so as you're saying that 97% of our, uh, 97% of what's going on inside of us is subconscious. Um, And and as someone with a high efficiency in four, um, I have a preoccupation with authenticity. But what's interesting is, um, what if, if most of what I'm experiencing is subconscious, um, I'm just kind of having this realization now that what I am um, touting as authenticity is really a very, very narrow understanding of myself and my responses and how I actually interact with people because I again, in the feeling triad, I want to see myself in a particular way. So I prioritize and pay attention to the, the things that, um, feed the particular kind of authenticity that I want to put out into the world. I don't know if that makes sense, but, um,
1: yeah, no, it absolutely does. But, um, it absolutely does. so it's, yeah. Can I, i was just gonna say if i can comment on that quick if you look at that spectrum of pain avoidant pleasure seeking and you just use the word authenticity this is kind of an easy practice not only for folks to develop their own dictionary or lexicon of language but also it helps to kind of clarify if you really resonate with the type that you are currently connected to or investigating as much as you think you do, Um, what you can do is go to thesaurus.com, type in the word that you most heavily associate with that type, and look at all of the synonyms that come up and see if most of the synonyms feel really, really life-giving. They automatically, even without explanation, feel life-giving. And if you scroll down and you look at the antonyms, the antonyms should automatically feel like a trigger. They should feel life threatening. Because what's happening is authenticity is associated with depth, meaning, truth connection relationship honesty like all of the things that are committed relationship dynamics right they're real depth they can also in excess if they're unhealthy provide the exact scenarios that are causing four spaces to drown because they want depth but then they can't get their head above water (laughs) and then if you, right yes (laughs) just saying every once in a while a four has to touch the shoreline (laughs) even if it doesn't stay there um but if you look at the antonym, what are fours allergic to? Look at the antonym of authenticity, and you'll see things like superficiality. right? What And here's the interesting thing. we also will oftentimes project what we are not happy about with ourselves or we give what we need. So a four can very often give depth and authenticity when it isn't requested and it isn't asked for, but then they can also project superficiality because they don't know how to manage it in themselves. And then you have this cycle where you're constantly going, I am my own antonym, and I can't seem to discover or hold on to my desired synonym. And then it starts to give you your own language to go, man, when somebody's talking to me, there's a nuance here that I can't exactly figure out what it is that I want. Cool. Grab the word that is associated with your number, go to thesaurus.com. look up all the synonyms and go boom that's what i was looking for and the cool thing with that is if you find a word like you go from authenticity to depth and you click on the word depth it'll give you a whole bank new bank of words and then you can end up with your own choose your own adventure and just keep clicking until you're like that's the word i'm looking
0: for interesting i'm definitely gonna try that
1: and then you create your own You know dictionary of words that you can provide to other people that says this is what i'm pursuing because it feels life-giving and pleasurable and these words feel good they're synonyms that resonate with me and then when you do this it actually feels like an antonym it feels like the opposite of what feels life-giving for me and that feels life-threatening or painful and you know another thing that's helpful for folks that are listening for the way the brain works people will get triggered if you either interfere with the synonym or you introduce the antonym. So if I'm pursuing appreciation and value as a two and you interfere with that, you'll trigger me. If you introduce, if you introduce especially deprecating conversations where you minimize my value intentionally, you'll trigger me the fastest. So you either interfere with, this is what feels life-threatening. It's life-threatening if you either interfere with the synonym or introduce the antonym, but it is life giving if you reinforce the synonym and you minimize or mitigate the antonym. And then you start to have your own bank of words. It's like, why did that feel so life giving? Oh, because they introduced my synonym. Or why did it feel so life threatening? Oh, well, they interfered with it and they especially introduced something that didn't feel like it, so right. I got triggered. Those are really helpful when you're talking about childhood wounds and adverse childhood experiences and trauma. And I think and it work. also
0: helps you understand. Um, kind of the conflict between people because I can get triggered because you interfered as I was, um, you know, looking for authenticity. Um, but, but if, if I can understand that, then maybe I can kind of, um, not that being angry is a bad thing, but I don't have to get angry at you because I got triggered, But if I can better communicate to you, hey, here's how here's where communication went wrong in that interaction because you interfered with this thing that I was that I was seeking, um, then that can make for, um, I don't know, more more conscious communication in the future. And also it gives me it gives me the opportunity to not just react to that person who interfered. Um, But rather, kind of observe my own reactions to
1: it. 100%. Because, I mean, if you think about this with a healthy boss or a healthy leader or a healthy parent, a reaction is involuntary. I have a four year old and a 19 month old, most of their life right now (laughs) is reactionary. They're still developing the part of the brain. You don't even develop the hardware for actual memory until you're about three. This is why everything's stored in your body. Again, Body Keeps the Score is a fantastic book. But when I'm talking to my four-year-old or my 19-month-old and they have a reaction, for me as a healthy parent, to help make them aware of that and then to hold that in a space where there isn't introduction of fear or shame or intimidation is an appropriate response from me because only one of us has a fully developed brain and it's not them.
0: Right. Right.
1: So when we're bringing these things up to mind, it's helpful. Sorry, again, the baggage claim behind me. Um, It's like somebody in the universe is going, danger. danger." And it's like we're just reinforcing the point here. Take a deep breath. No bears. Um, But if we are in a space that we know in our own internal leadership structure, our own internal family dynamic, our own internal community, if we become aware of a reaction, the first thing that we want to do, unless it is in fact life-threatening, actually life-threatening, which is an appropriate time to have a reaction. Unless it is actually life-threatening, it's probably a good idea to hold that with a little bit of patience and a little bit of space to go, the first thing that I'm trying to do is take a deep breath and become aware of the reaction and then voluntarily and consciously choose my response Mm. to that reaction. Reactions are involuntary, responses are voluntary, and what you don't want to do is make yourself aware of your own reaction and then automatically introduce fear, shame, or intimidation because all that's going to do is cause your brain to respond with more of a primal survival response because it still doesn't Mm -hmm. feel safe. The faster you can feel safe, the faster you can have a conscious decision. So when we're talking to someone else like that and you say, man, you really triggered me. First, I have to be aware of my own reaction and have enough conscious decision to say that to somebody, which, my God, is right. that hard. And then two, if somebody's having a reaction and they are angry, if I stop for just a second and the only thing that I do for myself or the other person is go, for some reason they don't feel safe and it might not be either of our fault, Right? Right. Mm-hmm. What does it look like to acknowledge that that person doesn't, that to some degree, in this environment, regardless of the rationale, and regardless of the understanding, something doesn't feel safe. And here's a fun fact. 90% of the triggers that exist in our lives precede the relationship or the person who you are standing in front of when you get mm-hmm. triggered. 90. Wow. So there's a nine out of 10 chance that the person who triggered you has nothing to do with why you feel the way you feel, and your body's going, this feels a lot like I did when I was seven. This feels a lot like I did when I was 15. This feels a lot like I did when I was 31 and I got sexually assaulted. This person feels the same. It doesn't mean they are the same person or the person who created the trigger. Now, if you're with a relationship for a longer period of time, just as a caveat, so nobody abdicates responsibility here, the longer you're in a relationship, especially if it's a repetitive event, the higher the probability that you are now the trigger but if it's someone that you don't have a longstanding deep relationship with and you get triggered, it's a high probability it's got nothing to do with that person. And it's got everything to do with something that feels Mm. like that person.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, I know that, I know that we've spent a lot of time on this and I want to wrap this up, even though I have so many more questions I could ask you, but, um, (laughs) if you can kind of, um, obviously I want everybody listening to go find your book and, um, kind of dig in a little bit deeper but um, if you can just kind of like um, give us a little taste of what it would look like to sort of um, work on or grow in efficiency of other numbers. So say I have my highest efficiency in four but um, I freeze in conflict and I want to be the kind of person who can show up in self um, and stand up for myself when um, conflict arises, and so I want to grow in that like eight efficiency of being able to be my own best advocate. Um, what is your yeah. What is your advice?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's that's great. Thank you for asking. And for the sake of time and not going into a two hour <laughs> podcast on every number, um, let me let me answer yeah. with some concepts. Um, I'm going to give you a, a metaphor of, of why it's important to travel. Um, then the, what you're trying to accomplish, and then how you do that. So I'll do okay. that super quick, okay? Um, the, the concept of travel, there's a, there's a quote in the book, the long version is in the book, but the short version by Mark Twain is travel is the antidote to prejudice. Mm-hmm. The reason I put that quote in there is because not only do most of us end up vegetating in our own space of the world and becoming nationalistic and having opinions about other people we don't do life with, but unfortunately, if we live in one type or one number or one region of the Enneagram, we are going to be very prejudiced towards the other numbers within ourselves, and we don't realize that we're prejudiced against ourselves. Mm. So the travel is really, really important. And if you understand the Enneagram as a whole, it's a global experience of who you are, and you may be high high efficiency in four, but that's like having your headquarters located in the country of authenticity and individuality. Delta is based in Atlanta, Southwest is based in Dallas. They fly all over the world. So you may keep your home base, in four spaces, but that does not mean that not only can you travel to every other space on the Enneagram continentally or from a country internationally space, but you have flights going in all of those areas all day anyways, because those areas are active. It's just whether or not you're aware of it. So the first thing is to know that there's there's travel happening all over your experience. Just because you're not aware of it doesn't mean it's not happening, but you also have the capacity to go to all of those places. And the more that you intentionally plan a trip, and you travel there, the better that you're going to understand the people who live in those spaces, especially through internal family systems, which I think oh, is fantastic, yes. or I love DBT or, a- or AEDP, right? So you understand all of those origin space and family of origin conversations. Um, and why do we not travel there anymore? Well, you know, Hannah had a really bad experience in that aid space when she was growing up. We don't go there anymore because the last time we were there, there was mm. a terrorist attack. Well, yeah, that's understandable. But was that terrorist attack 30 years ago? And that whole place has been rebuilt into a life-giving space because your brain's really good at healing things even if you're not aware of it? I'm just throwing it out there. (laughs) So travel is key first. Secondly, secondly is understanding why would I want to try and do that? And then the name of the game for me across the board as a human being is increasing and developing healthy resilience. Now, resilience is a word that very few people define well, and I'm not saying my definition is the best, but I think the way that I look at resilience is how quickly and effectively and accurately can you tell the difference between discomfort and trauma?
0: Wow. That's it.
1: If you want to develop resilience, you have to be able to stay in a space that's going to be uncomfortable but won't kill you. Now, the thing is, is all of us know this when we go into a physical workout, that if I don't break a sweat, that workout didn't do anything for me. And if I do a good workout, I'm probably gonna be sore for a couple of days afterwards because my body is processing that experience. But if I end up traumatizing my body and tearing a tendon or getting a head injury, that's gonna be really, really hard for me to recover from. So the the way that you tell the difference between discomfort and trauma is the length of time for recovery. If it takes you a conversation in an eight space that is uncomfortable for a few hours or a few days, but you don't remember it a week later, that was uncomfortable, it was not traumatic. So when we look at the difference between discomfort and trauma, the length of time for recovery will answer that question for us. But most of us are afraid to engage in things because we think it's gonna be life-threatening, when in fact, it's probably gonna break a sweat and make us uncomfortable for a few days, especially if it's done with a good trainer and a good Mm -hmm. partner. Those are really, really important pieces. So understand your mental, emotional, relational, and if you believe in it, spiritual health, have to be exercised in ways that are not going to be accomplished by avoiding discomfort, but by engaging it in and realizing that's the only way you build strength and stamina, not by hurting yourself, but by strengthening yourself. Because if it's hard, it's helpful. If it's harmful, it's not. So that's very different. So you take the idea that you can travel, Take the idea that it's okay to have a workout and it's okay for it to be uncomfortable. All good growth is. And then how you do that. The thing that I, I think from the, the book I try... The book's got a lot of practical applications in the back and some, some understanding around it. But here's a really simple high-level piece. If you know your primary number, why don't you visit the other countries that are in that triad? Because you already speak that language mm, pretty well. Yeah. And if, if you have never really... Found yourself in one of the other triads? Why don't you see what it would look like to read about them and say what would it look like to plan a trip? <laughs> Can I maybe read the trip? I I don't. I've never been to Italy. I don't speak Italian. But you know what? I hear they have some good food. Could I see what might be late? What could possibly be a life-giving experience? Because here's the thing. Very few people, unless you are somebody who is like a war journalist, okay, very few people are planning a trip because they want to go there and have a (laughs) life-threatening experience, all right? So we've, we've got to give ourselves a little bit of space to go, if you are intentionally biasing the opportunity for the conversation to go to a new place and give yourself a higher probability of life-giving experiences, that's what we do every time we plan a damn mm. vacation. That is fine. There's nothing wrong with going, I have no idea, like five and eight are two of my lowest spaces. I don't have a ton of lived experience around being in conflict or disruption or tension with an eight space and it being mm. life-giving. But you know what? If I know the natural gift of an eight is growth and disruption and disrupting patterns and being able to handle really difficult things and somebody could put a stick of dynamite into the middle of my world, blow everything up and I will still find a way to survive, that's resilient. Like I would like to have a conversation with somebody who's capable of handling conflict and not remembering it every minute of every day for years because they can let Mm -hmm. it go quickly. So what would it look like to see that those spaces have gifts and they have really life-giving traits and characteristics. So maybe just read about those positive characteristics of those numbers rather than reminding ourselves like freaking you know, all of the news channels that are on right now how much of those spaces are nothing but bad news, right? Because then we're just gonna reinforce our own narrative. So here's a really simple answer. If you are in a triad that is connected more to feeling, why don't you just read about triads that are connected to thinking and doing? and see what traits they offer that might be picked up by you that you would find interesting. And the same for the other spaces. I think the biggest thing that you can do, especially if some numbers, whatever number frustrates you the most, is probably a good idea to go, can I even frame anything that that space offers as positive and healthy? Because if I don't, I'm not willing to find it in myself because it feels scary. And that can be a really good space to start with. And then also your own space, uh, be careful about reading your own mail about how negative and unhealthy you are or reading your mail about how everything you do is incredible and always helpful. <laughs> because if you're polarizing your... And here's the thing, you know it, Hannah. You talk to a lot of people about it. People will polarize their space as either profoundly helpful or profoundly unhelpful if they're really honest about it. And if there's anything that's ever polarized, somebody either doesn't understand it or they've oversimplified Ooh, it. And that's, that's just not the point. way it works. We're more yeah. complex than that. Yeah. Okay. So I think educating first, maybe planning a trip second. And then when you live in that space, realize if something sounds or feels or looks like a bear, it's probably not.
0: Yeah. And I but I think it's important to it's important to give it's important to be able to observe and not um, shame that immediate reaction that says it is a bear and. Um, because I think that's that's something that I've done a lot is gaslighting myself of like this feels like it's a bear, um, but it's not. You're stupid. Stop thinking that. Just you know, don't look at it. Make it go away. Avoid, repress, essentially. Um, so uh, my the the edge of growth for me is being able to be like, okay, this feels like it's a bear, and I'm just gonna sit with that without reacting and i'm I'm going and i'm going to observe it without you know running (laughs) or freezing
1: yeah yeah and knowing in that space man acknowledging this is so tiring that's hard and it's difficult and it it doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong it means that you're aware of something that still hurts and if you're still healing you know i mean if we if we looked at emotional trauma the same way and, and mental trauma and all these other spaces the same way that we do scar tissue This is an analogy that I use with patients all the time. You realize scars are not healed. People think that scars are healed. If you have a scar from 30 years ago, and you see that scar now, it is profoundly different compared to what it was 30 years ago because it is always continuously healing. The difference is it was triage, and the frequency of the pain that you experienced is so different that you think it's healed. But if the weather changes or a significant enough event happens or your body is put into a position that it doesn't handle that particular position as well as it normally does, you can tweak the scar and still feel a tinge of the pain. So putting ourselves into a space where we go, man, I'm so much further than I was, was, but I have to know that sometimes I'm gonna tweak that area and I'm gonna I'm gonna have an experience where the environment is gonna cue and remind me, hey man, I know things are a lot better, but that's still mm-hmm. a little uncomfortable and that's yeah. okay. As I become aware of that not abdicating and not dismissing, but sitting with somebody who's really, really good at helping us to see other perspectives like a therapist or like a guide, you know. The 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 rate of the degree of skill that we have for traveling around our own wilderness is probably a good idea to have somebody who's gonna guide us through that until we have the capacity to do it on our own. So if you're with a therapist for the rest of your life and that person is helping you guide that through the wilderness, that is not an indication of your insufficiency. It's an indication of your intelligence to go, I can't do this by right, myself <laughs> right you know that's not a that's not a negative it's a it's actually very good discernment and wisdom and healthy choices to the space so i i agree with you i think it's just a case sometimes of not only knowing that there aren't any bears but also going man that still really feels like one and that that's something that i can i can sit with and work through and that's okay too
0: well jerome i this has been an absolutely life-giving conversation i'm so excited to be able to share it with um, listeners, where can people find you in your work?
1: Yeah. So the easiest way to find it. And and first and foremost, I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk to you. Um, you know, I, the number of people that come up and they're like, have you seen this thing called the Millenniagram? And I'm like, yeah, it's (laughs) awesome. I was at a, a conference. I was at a conference last week and there were out of a group of 30 people. They're not always young people there but there were six people under 30 and every single one of them was profoundly connected wow. to the work that you're doing every single one of them it's like it is not only is it a lifeline but it's a really really good resource so thank I'm you, so Jerome. grateful for the time and, and, and for the space thank you um, the place that everybody can find it is drjerome.com d r j e r o m e.com uh and then the, I, I am actually, I think, allergic to social media. I'm trying not to be, but I'm, I'm just allowing. I, I, I'm i also allergic to self-promotion, so it's super weird for me. I would actually would be more than fine getting done with the podcast and not saying where people can find it because it's, uh, it's just my own bias. But um, on Instagram is primarily where we do most of our, our information sharing, and, and that's either Dr. Jerome Libba or Whole Identity uh, and then... DrJerome.com connects everybody to both the clinic space as well as the neurotheology space, which is more specific for neuroscience and spirituality, and then Whole Identity, which is Enneagram and neuroscience-specific, but not necessarily spirituality. So a couple of different veins for people to connect with.
0: Oof, okay, that was a lot, Um, but I believe in us. Um, I want to continue this conversation because I feel like We gave you some cool tidbits, and now we need to go out into the world. We need to work this shit out. We need to see how it all plays into our lives, into our numbers, into our interactions with the people around us. So hit me up on Twitter, at Hannah Posh, H-A-N-N-A-H-P-A-A-S-C-H, and let's talk about what respect and control look like in both our parenting relationships, in our reparenting relationships with our younger selves, and how that plays out. Hit me up. Let's keep the conversation rolling, folks. I'm excited. We out.